Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A warning before we start. The material in this podcast is very dark. We'll be discussing violent crimes against children. We'll try to be restrained where we can. But to tell this story, we sometimes have to be pretty graphic. Ready? I was molested in this room. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of bad things happen here. Yeah, there was a time that I'd burnt this whole island right to the ground. Spent my whole life wanting to kill myself over this Just to put the pain away, to make the memories go away. And why in the am I trying to remember this We need to take a break, guys. Yes, for sure. Oh, starting to hallucinate. From ID, this is The Clown and the Candyman, an eight-part podcast about two pedophiles and murderers from the 1970s and the tangled web they wove. I'm Jacqueline Bynan. Remember summer camp? I do, because I never went to summer camp. My parents said they couldn't afford it. So I was so jealous of my friends back in the 70s who did. They came back with all these really cool stories. Sitting by the campfire, no parents around at all. Swimming in the lake, trying all these new things like archery, canoeing, toasting marshmallows, and singing songs you only ever sang sitting around the campfire. 
especially when they talk about the cute counselor and secret assignations, gazing at the stars and dreaming of that first kiss. I was so jealous. Back in the 70s, we trusted our camp counselors like we trusted the gym teacher, the coach. They were everything to us. The story I'm about to reveal is a different type of camp, and the man who's about to tell it would rather he never had those memories. The veneer of that trusted institution, the summer camp, can hide a darker motive. Some of these people were looking for kids to abuse, and it worked like a charm. Where do you think Penn State football coach Jerry Sandusky got the idea for his 1977 organization for boys? It started back then, and it became a model that worked for years. Unless you've been living under a rock, you also know the name Jeffrey Epstein. Epstein's private island in the Caribbean, dubbed Pedophile Island, has gained worldwide media attention for its ties to the sexual abuse allegations against him. Epstein, who's already a convicted sex offender, was accused of trafficking underage girls to the island for sex. But he wasn't the first millionaire pedophile to use an island as a haven for sex exploitation. Epstein was a copycat. This is the story of millionaire Francis Sheldon, his role in the world of abusers and killers like Dean Corll and John Wayne Gacy, and the original pedophile island. In the previous episode, we spelled out the story of the Oakland County child killings in suburban Detroit in the mid-1970s, and we learned that the pedophiles operating out of Detroit all seemed to connect to each other. This episode stretches that group out even further. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Have you ever heard the expression, perfect is the enemy of good? I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to my body and health, because perfect does not exist. It's a total trap. Noom isn't into this perfection thing either. Its unique approach is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey, no one else's journey. 
I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself. And treat yourself, you should. What's more, Noom's approach is grounded in science. They've even published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about how they work. To date, Noom has helped more than 5.2 million people lose weight by helping them build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. So why not give it a try? Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. In the middle of Lake Michigan sits a speck of green called North Fox Island. When you fly over and look down, it's shaped like a teardrop. There's a green landing strip slashed through the middle of the island. There's no dock, no harbor. It can only be accessed by air. And North Fox Island has a dark story. In the summer of 1976, it was the home of a boys' camp. And that camp was a front for a nationwide child pornography ring. In August of 1976, that ring was exposed. A young journalist named Marilyn Wright broke the story in the pages of the Traverse City Record Eagle. There was a brief, limited scandal, but only one arrest. And after all, it was a rather small newspaper in northern Michigan. And then for 30 years, it was forgotten. And a lot of that had to do with money and power. In July 2020, former Detroit News reporter Marnie Rich Keenan published a book, the Snow Killings, inside the investigation into the Oakland County child killings. And the chapter on North Fox Island is a must-read. So, Marnie, you're writing a book about the four kids killed in Oakland County, and you come across this millionaire running a porn ring. How did that happen? It was strongly suspected that the four kids in our case were being used for child pornography before they were killed. So in his investigation, Detective Corey Williams identified a child pornography ring that was operating in the cast corridor of Detroit. So Corey also had leads that suggested the cast corridor ring was being financed by the same man who was behind Fox Island's ring, Francis Sheldon. Francis Sheldon was a wealthy real estate developer from Gross Point. He served on many prominent boards in the area. And in 1960, he purchased a small island in Lake Michigan, and he installed an airstrip. He was a pilot, and he built some cabins. And I think the place was billed as a vacation home for area residents in Charlevoix, but Instead, it was a multi-million dollar child pornography operation. So was this a business that Sheldon was running, a pornography ring? Yes, and they ran it through the mails. And there were filmings all over the country in basements in, in, in New York and in the Cass Corridor they were filming in um, Bobby Moore's mansion. They and they would send the films through the mail. And he recruited young boys um, through their parents 
to come to a nature camp that he called uh, Brother Paul's Children Mission. It was actually a, a tax dodge because <laughs> they were getting state money to operate it. So he had this camp that set up, and he would bring these underprivileged boys to the camp, and then he invited his friends there, and the kids really were there just for their pickings, his clients. Exactly. So why does a rich guy do this? This is an amazing story because Francis Sheldon came from a well-respected family with history in Michigan. Very prominent family. Yeah, his lineage, you know, go, leads to the White House. He was a very powerful, sick individual, you know. Like I said earlier, everyone thinks Epstein came up with the idea of using a secluded island to cloak his activities. But looking back at Francis Sheldon, Epstein was nothing more than a copycat. Like Sheldon, Jeffrey Epstein had a private plane that he used to transport the girls to his private island. It's come to be known as the Lolita Express. Both were wealthy bachelors surrounded by well-connected friends. Both men donated money to organizations and causes. Epstein knew his way around a shell company or two, but Sheldon's alleged pedophile buddies did as well. Police said a frequent guest on the island was Dyer Grossman, a private school teacher from New York. Another, Adam Starchild, a convicted fraudster and expert in offshore financing and money laundering. And here's another similarity. Ultimately, Sheldon, Dyer Grossman, and Adam Starchild would all escape justice for their alleged involvement. The only one that got caught was the one with no money and no connections, a local gym teacher named Gerald Richards. How did local gym teacher Gerald Richards from Port Huron, Michigan, get caught up with all these rich pedophiles? Marnie Rich Keenan explains. So he had employed Gerald Richards to be his, I think he was listed as director on the papers. And um, Gerald Richards was a gym instructor in Port Huron for a Catholic school. And he was also a photographer. So he did a lot of the filming for Sheldon's project. He got caught molesting one of his students. And once he was arrested, he started to spill the beans on Sheldon. And once he told the police what he was part of, Sheldon was tipped off. And so Francis Sheldon got a head start and cleared out everything from his apartment in Ann Arbor and Harbor Springs and fled the country. And he was never extradited. Here's what's interesting. We found one of the original kids who was on that island, and we found him through a mistake. He knew Francis Sheldon, Gerald Richards, Dyer Grossman, and he testified against them. At the age of only 15, he found himself in the middle of a real-life conspiracy. We gave him a call, and he had a lot to say. Next thing you know, I'm taking pictures and stuff. They were um, nude pictures.
If it hadn't been for a mistake, this story you're about to hear would probably still be hidden. When we were working on the documentary Children of the Snow, we received an old set of Michigan State Police documents about North Fox Island from one of our sources. Now these were documents that many people had been told had disappeared. Well, my producer, Tara Hughes, poured over these files and found a clue. Someone forgot to redact two words. The name of a witness from North Fox Island, Michael Farquhar. We gave him a call, and for the first time, he told his story in our documentary. Michael is a down-to-earth guy, no pretensions, and he makes no bones about telling the story of what happened to him back in the 1970s. What I remember most about this story, it's a very simple beginning for you. You know, I was out with my shovel, 12 years old, and I come across Jerry Richard's house, who's actually a couple blocks down. He seemed like a really nice guy, you know. I shoved his sidewalk, he gave me five bucks. He told me he was a magician and showed me a couple magic tricks. I actually met his wife and his child, and uh, we became friends. Nothing was going on at first, and then he uh, worked for the YMCA, and he was a school teacher, a, a priest, a hypnotist, a magician, a clown. And he even taught that stuff. He taught photography at the YMCA. He was teaching witchcraft at the YMCA. I um, actually got an award that I still have to this very day. I don't know why for um, Wicca, um, which that was kind of strange. My mother wasn't happy about that at all. She uh, didn't want him showing me anything about Wicca and stuff and was just left it more of a mystery to me. So when Gerald Richards asked you to be his assistant in his magic act at 12 years or 13. Who wouldn't want to do that? It was cool. I mean, I'm going to be a magician's assistant, and I actually even raised his dubs, teaching them how to be stuffed in a hat so they could pop out, you know, during a magic trick. Who can resist a magic trick? And boys back then loved them, like they love video games today. It reminded me of Dean Coral's handcuff trick, and that will come up again in this series. Years of therapy and soul-searching have made it easier for Michael to describe how a 12-year-old's friendship with an adult man, technically his boss, was slowly twisted into abuse. It just started out with, you know, the hugs, you know, the squeezes, you're my friend, and then... You know, like I said, he was into photography. Next thing you know, I'm taking pictures and stuff. They were um, nude pictures. <sighs> a lot of it was bondage. He had the magic ropes that we'd use in our magic uh, tricks, where he would tie me up with the ropes, and then I would escape from him when we're doing magic shows. Well, he would also use those ropes doing uh, pornography pictures, porn pictures. You know, of course, he explained to me we couldn't talk about it. Then, it, you know, it got worse. Other kids got involved, and he had us taking pictures. And it wasn't much longer after that. I started talking about his friends. They seen my pictures, and they want to meet me and stuff like that. Within six months of knowing him, I was already into um, child prostitution. We would be 
either going to a church to do a magic show to where there would be a preacher or a priest or a clergyman of some sort there that, you know, I would be sold to. There's places where I've had to go where there were other kids. This is the hard part for people to understand, and they're going to think whatever they're going to think, but when you're that age and then you get into something that you go, I can't tell my parents what I'm into, you're kind of in for a penny, in for a pound, right? It was so difficult because the guilt I felt, I couldn't even look my dad in the eye when I would come home or my mom. I mean, it was easier to deal with my mom, but my dad, I couldn't even really look at him. And all the while, uh, your parents and everybody thought you were just Gerald Richards' magic show assistant? Yep. Jerry Richards, he had everybody duped. I mean, my mom loved the guy. My dad thought he was a, a little weird, but he really liked him. I mean, everybody liked Jerry, all the neighbors. Nobody knew nothing about that pedophile stuff or even suspected anything like that. I mean, at 12 years old, this guy was training me how to be, you know. Did you ever want to tell your parents? Did you ever want to say one day, hey, Mom, guess what? Or No, I no, no, I could never do that. I don't think I could ever went up and told them. Today, you would hope that your kids would. I'm not so sure if they would. When they do get older, they'll come tell you, though. <laughs> yeah, they'll, start, they'll tell you everything when they're older, if you're close with your family. Yeah. So, Michael, were you sex trafficked? For sure, that's what it was all about. I mean, particularly at the Magic Convention, um, we met up with Sheldon, and there was some sex acts during that time, too. But nine out of ten out of times when we were out of town, I would literally be going to campgrounds here in Michigan and in Tennessee. <laughs> then there's uh, the island. I was all over the place. Now I think back, a lot of really bad things happened in the Detroit area. So, Michael, how did you first meet Francis Sheldon? I guess Sheldon met up with Richard somehow through passing my pictures and other kids' pictures around through the post office. And I remember him telling me all about Sheldon. Oh, this guy's rich. He owns an island. He's a really nice guy. And the first time I actually met Sheldon, it would either be at the campgrounds. Oh, Jerry used to have a doctor's office, too, in Port Huron where he would do, like, massages and stuff. But i probably call it something different today. <laughs> yeah, I met with Sheldon in there before. Met with him a few times, and they felt comfortable enough to where Jerry wanted to introduce Sheldon to my parents. So Frank came over with Jerry, and we all had dinner together, my parents and them, and... Frank Sean was telling my parents who he is and what he does. Sheldon had dinner with your parents. You, there was Gerald Richards, Sheldon, and your parents and you, sitting there knowing what's the reality of this. People listening to this will be absolutely shocked to hear this, that, you, that this scenario was happening. I don't know. I guess, you know, back in them days, People were more trusting. Sheldon took my entire family for a, a flight over the Blue Water Bridge. Uh, one time he was over for dinner. 
and everybody got to fly in his airplane. So, oh, everybody loved Sheldon. That guy was cool. So your parents gave them permission that you could go to the island because it was a camp that was there for underprivileged boys or to give boys a chance. Finding any pictures of the camp on this island is elusive, to say the least. There is really only one picture of Francis Sheldon on the island, and there are few witness accounts, except for the one who knew him only too well. And he's still paying the price for what he knows. How many kids were on that island, can you recall? 10, 2, 40, 20? Well, no. There was probably six to eight of us out there. Some of the kids, they didn't have no clue what these guys were about. I think they were being scouted, bringing the island to get them all excited and stuff, and they would try grooming them at that point. Some of the kids knew exactly what was going on. Those were the kids that, you know, they'd take photos with. And how old were you? Well, it all happened between the age of 12 and 15. I was in driver's training at 15, and when it ended, that's when the detectives came to talk to me and put the fear of God in me. So he had, you know, two and a half to three years to groom me. I guess that's the word we use. How did the North Fox Island fall apart? Me and Eddie. I guess they heard Eddie. Richards or Sheldon sodomized Eddie. I think Eddie was only eight or nine years old. And they heard him, and Eddie's mom got the police involved. And... After Eddie, the police came and questioned me and put the fear of God in me. Here's what's really scary about what happened next. When the police questioned Michael, they didn't bring a social worker or a guidance counselor. Instead, they treated him like a criminal. Now, imagine being 15 years old. They pulled you out of the driver's ed class, put you in an empty classroom alone, and get in your face telling you you're going to jail for life if you don't confess. Confess to what? This idea Michael was complicit in the boys' camp scam surfaced years later. Gerald Richards gave interviews from prison singing Michael's praises like he was a business partner and not a 15-year-old boy. If there's one thing I've learned about pedophiles, you can't always believe them when they tell you the kid is in on it. And the first thing I did when I got home was call Jerry Richards and told him. Police are questioning me. That's when the wheels really started turning, and it was an all gun hold. They were going to arrest everybody, and everybody's going to be, they're all going to jail. They gave Jerry Richards 18 months. They let them other freaks go. And my dad knew all the detectives. And I think that the detectives told my dad, Mom, something. Because my mom was so scared, she wanted me out of her sister-in-law's in California. They knew that these guys were powerful, that were molesting me, and that anything could happen. This was a much bigger ring with tentacles in a lot of places. But when did you realize he was attached to something much bigger? That would be in the early 80s. I got an attorney involved, and that's when I was dealing with a prosecutor because he wanted to um, exodite Sheldon. And he said he, they knew where Grossman was, too. And he wanted to bring them both to justice. And that's when I started thinking. And that next three or four weeks, 
things just started spiraling out of control. And I got angry. I got really angry. That's when I realized, hey, what the hell was Jerry doing to me? What were these kids doing? What was I doing? You know, I'm, I'm, I, I had to question myself. What was going on? Over the years, Michael's desire for some kind of justice has not diminished. It's only grown. Just like we trusted our camp counselors, we trusted the institutions and charities that received state funds to care for kids. So did Michael Farquhar, and so did his parents. Michael and the kids at that camp, like his younger friend Eddie, were carefully chosen, groomed, given perks, money, and then trapped by their own guilt and shame. And because the guy running the island was rich and influential, he got away with it. Did Gerald ever say he was sorry? No, nobody said sorry. No. No. These pedophiles are not sorry for what they do. We just don't understand why they do it. That's all. You know, and we're supposed to live with that. When we made the documentary, Children of the Snow, we took Michael back to North Fox Island, and he went into the bunkhouse, which was one of the places where he was abused. As you've heard, Michael is very polite and soft-spoken, but when he re-entered that bunkhouse, 40 years of anger surfaced. I was molested in this room. Yeah, this, uh... A lot of bad things happen here. Yeah, there was a time that I'd have burnt this whole island right to the ground. <laughs> Spent my whole life wanting to kill myself over this <laughs> Just to put the pain away, to make the memories go away. And why in the am I trying to remember this <sighs> We need to take a break, guys. Yes, for sure. Oh. Starting to hallucinate. We played you that clip at the top of the episode. Now that you've heard Michael's story, you can understand his reaction. I don't know if I could go back to a place like that with all those memories, but Michael wanted to go back and face those demons, and it took a lot of courage for him to do that. What happens to Sheldon? Where does he go? Well... I didn't hear from Sheldon again, with the exception. He had somebody call my house, and I, I actually answered the phone, or it could have been um, Adam Starchild. The last thing I remember him saying is that Frank has a lot of money, and you have a lot of friends, and we're friends, just they didn't want me to say nothing to the police. And then my dad heard of that conversation, uh, something I must have said back, and took the phone away from me, and told him, oh, if you ever call my house again, I'll kill all you something. I mean, rarely did I see my dad ever get mad, but he about bit the phone right in half. You want a weird sidebar to this story? Look into this Adam Starchild guy who lived offshore and faked his own death in 1977. Francis Sheldon left all of his money in a trust when he fled the country, a trust managed by Adam Starchild. Bad decision. Later, Sheldon, 
had to sue to get his own money back. Michael, when did you actually start to deal with what happened back then? The 80s were really scary for me when um, the prosecutor came to me and started talking to me about what took place in the 70s. And at that point, my first child was about to be born. And um, remember what was going on in the 70s, it kind of messed me up. There was a time with my significant other at the time with my first child where um, she said that I was talking in my sleep all the time and fighting in my sleep. She says that I speak different languages when I'm sleeping. And um, there were some really rough times, so I started seeing a therapist and told him the stories. They didn't believe me. I don't even think the prosecutors, when I tried telling them, I think they thought I was crazy too. But it, it was bad. They knew they knew something happened with Sheldon and Richards and stuff, and you know, and Richards was somewhat prosecuted. I mean, I don't even think he did two years. I think he did 18 months for all of this. Gerald Richards, or Jerry the Magician, was sentenced to two to ten years in prison. He would go on to give many interviews while incarcerated to 60 Minutes reporter Ken Wooden and to Chicago Tribune reporter Michael Sneed, and she'll come up later in this series. He was released in 1980. His wife had divorced him by then, and he was living with his mother. But old habits die hard. In 1988, U.S. postal inspectors charged Richards with sending child porn in the mail, again. Eight years later, in 1996, at the age of 49, Richards committed suicide. Dyer Grossman, Sheldon's alleged co-conspirator, was last seen in Washington State in 1978. From there, he disappeared into thin air and has never been found. Francis Sheldon fled to Holland. He'd never faced justice in the United States, and he died in 1996. Besides the trust fund that left his money to his brother, he also gave $25,000 to his alma mater, Yale. Financier and convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein was also known to donate to Ivy League schools like Harvard. There's a lot of similarities, and the Ivy League connection is just another one of these parallels. I asked Michael what he thought when he heard about the Jeffrey Epstein case. I mean, at first when I heard Epstein, he was buried too for a while. You know, he got in trouble and it all got buried. Those girls never got no justice. And this is what scares me, you know, theories. You know what I'm saying? And all these rumors that we've been hearing about our government and politicians, it needs to be cleaned. It needs to be cleaned. A lot of people. I mean, it's, we're going to find out with this Epstein thing just how bad it is. Yeah. It's ugly. And you know what? I sent the governor a letter. And I thought it was a pretty good letter. I even had an attorney proofread it. I had another writer read it. So it wasn't sounding like I was crazy or something. And 
I didn't even get a reply from the governor. I didn't get a reply from the state police. I didn't get a reply from the attorney general. They sit in silence. What did you say in your letter? I explained to them, you know, just like I've been saying to you today, you know, I went through different periods of my life in this, this whole thing, you know, and I remember the seventies. Who wants to drag the seventies around with them today? But, oh yeah, I went back there. You know, I thought that I needed to, I had to, but I get just, I, I get so angry, you know, I trusted the police. They, they couldn't do nothing. They couldn't get these guys. They were too slick. How come none of these guys were brought to justice? They had help. They had help getting away. Who exactly was it was helping them? I never had no reason to doubt the um, prosecutors. I mean, I had no reason to doubt that they had, didn't do their best efforts to get justice. So with that being said, other law officials in other counties, other branches of the government, stonewalled them. They stonewalled our, our, our community, you know? You know, there's gotta be an end of this stuff. My attorney many, many years ago told me some stories are just too big to be told. The fact that you've laid it out there as raw and as emotional as it is and as disturbing as it is still to you, uh, I tip my hat to you because it takes a lot of courage to do this. I, I got a lot of daughters and a lot of grandchildren. And when I'm gone, I want to make sure they're safe. I want everybody to know the boogeyman's out there. Boogeyman's out there, you got to watch your babies. You know? The damage done to Michael Farquhar is permanent. He's a nice guy who's done more to help us understand what happened at North Fox Island than any prosecutor did at the time. He's also a reminder that no matter where you enter this story, the Candyman, the Oakland County child killings, Francis Sheldon, or John Wayne Gacy, the same thing happens. The scale of abuse gets big, and it gets big fast. Eventually, you start hearing the same names over and over. In this case, the Michigan abuse ring went from Francis Sheldon's phony camp organization, the so-called Brother Paul's Children's Mission, to another phony camp funded by Sheldon in another state altogether. Earlier, I asked Michael about those camping trips, those trips out of state. You see, Michael is convinced he visited another trusted, well, camp for boys. This one in Tennessee, a place that Francis Sheldon sponsored with his charitable donations. I wondered, was it the Boys Farm Inc. in Winchester, Tennessee, run by a defrocked priest named Bud Vermeil? While Sheldon escaped in 1976, Bud Vermeil wasn't so lucky. But the reason that Bud Vermeil was caught in Tennessee wasn't because of Francis Sheldon and the North Fox Island bust. It was because of another ring of pedophiles who took over a Boy Scout troop and used it to launder children nationwide. That's next week on Episode 4, Scout's Honor.
The Clown and the Candyman is an original podcast from ID and Cineflix Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Jacqueline Bynan. The series producer is Tara Hughes. John White is our editor, with mixing by VO2 in Toronto. The executive producer for ID is Tim Bainey. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.